Hi, my name is Nora. The Old Testament reading is found in Exodus 20, verses 1 and 2 and 13. Then God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Do not kill. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Maggie. The New Testament reading is found in Romans 13, 8 to 10. Do not be in debt to anyone except for the obligation to love others. Whoever loves another person has fulfilled the law. The commandments, do not commit adultery, don't murder, don't steal, don't desire what others have, and any other commandments are all summed up in one word. You must love your neighbor as yourself. Love doesn't do anything wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is what fulfills the law. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Diana, and thank you for standing for the gospel reading found in Matthew 5, verses 21 through 24. You have heard that it was said to those who lived long ago, don't commit murder, and all who commit murder will be in danger of judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with their brother or sister will be in danger of judgment. If they say to their brother or sister, you idiot, they will be in danger of being condemned by the governing council. And if they say, you fool, they will be in danger of fiery hell. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift at the altar and go. First make things right with your brother or sister, and then come back and offer your gift. The Gospel of the Lord. Please remain standing as we pray. Gracious Father, we come to you, the giver of life, the one who gives us life and life abundantly and life full. And we come to you asking that you would continue to fill us with your life, and teach us how to live lives that are honoring to you. As we wrestle with your text, with your word, with your thoughts and ideas, speak to us, teach us, form us, help us to live in ways uh, that are pleasing to you. We love you and thank you in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. amen. You may be seated. It's good to see you this morning. My name is Jason Jackson, one of the pastors here at New Life Downtown, and this is the sixth week in our summer series on the Ten Commandments. So we're walking through these ten words that God spoke to the people of Israel after he'd rescued them from Egypt, brought them to himself to make a covenant with them, to enter into a relationship with them and to prepare them to go into the land that he is giving them. And today, I'm going to be looking at the sixth commandment. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to Exodus chapter 20. We're going to be in verse 13, which, as you notice from the reading, is not a particularly long verse. Uh, in fact, we're getting to a point in uh, the Ten Commandments where we have a series of three short commandments. Uh, they're each two words long in the original language and six total consonants. Uh, so it's a very, very short, short, short statement. And this is what the sixth commandment says very clearly in Exodus chapter 20, verse 13, do not kill, or maybe in your other uh, translations, do not murder, depending upon the translation that you're working with. And when we look at a commandment with this, we're like, well, isn't that really super straightforward? Isn't that kind of like a given? 
universal, like no matter where you go, just about every culture, like this is kind of a given thing. So Jason, this can be the shortest sermon you've ever given. We can say amen and go home from here, right? No? So what we've seen kind of throughout, some people are like, yes, please, as we're waving the fans, close, getting closer to our neighbor to get a little of their fan, whatever you've got to do. Uh, but as we've seen kind of throughout this series, we recognize that each of these words, that there's, some, there's always more to them than what we see on the surface. Then in many ways, these are not God's last words about these topics. They're his first words. There is foundational sort of words. And then from there, we can trace the scriptures out as they say more and more and more about these ideas that are laid here. In many ways, it's kind of like we can look at them on the outside, but if we crack it open, we see that there's a whole lot more going on with each of these words than we kind of initially sort of think about. If that were not true, then think about if we just took all of the commandments at face value. If we just took them at face value, one Old Testament professor says this way. He says, if we took them that way, then most of the Ten Commandments could be kept by staying in bed all day and avoiding human contact. <laughs> right? Like, okay, worship only one God. I can stay in bed and do that. Yes, thank you, Lord. Some of us are doing that right now. You're watching online. It's good to see you this morning. Right? Not making an idol. So I'm not supposed to like take off all my jewelry, put it in a fire, make a golden calf out of it while in bed. Because that would be worse than cooking bacon on a George Foreman grill while in bed and seeing what's going to happen there. Right? Okay, okay, we can do that. Stay in bed, avoid people, not use the Lord's name in vain. I'm not talking to anybody. There's nobody around to talk to. The Sabbath, oh, I crushed that one. Right? Do not work, no problem. I am resting all day long. Do not kill, there's nobody around. Do not commit adultery. Again, I'm by myself. We can keep going on. Do not steal, I'm in my own room. There's nothing, the only one that's hard in the middle of this is not coveting somebody else's life as you're stuck in bed all day. Right? There's got to be something more going on in all of these commandments. And so when we think about the sixth commandment in particular, the whole commandment sort of hinges on the meaning of the verb, right? Even in English translations, we can see there's a little bit of ambiguity there. One version says kill, another version says murder. What's going on here with this verb? It's the only thing we really have to work with. And as in English, there are a number of verbs that can be used to indicate the taking of somebody else's life. There's a number of verbs that can be used. But in this particular passage, in the Ten Commandments, we find that the Lord uses actually a relatively rare word. A word that's not the most common in this sort of vocabulary that was available. Chooses a particular word that actually only occurs 47 times in the entire Old Testament. Which is a really low number for considering all of the verbs that they have for killing in the Old Testament. This word only occurs 47 times. And 70% of those usages, 70% of them are related to the passages that talk about the cities of refuge. 70% of the 47 are found in the cities of refuge passages. So if you're not familiar with the cities of refuge are, in the Old Testament, God commanded the Israelites to set up six sanctuary cities so that if an Israelite happens to kill another person, he or she can flee there to one of these sanctuary cities to avoid being killed by the person they killed's relative. 
So in order to avoid having an avenger come and take that person's life, somebody from that, uh, the victim's clan or tribe or family coming and legally killing them in the Old Testament, to avoid that happening, they can run to this city until there can be a trial to determine whether or not the killing was intentional or unintentional. Because the idea of the command was to try to curb killing in some way. To say, we, if there was an accident, if somebody was building a house and a stone fell off and landed on somebody, it was an act, clearly an accident. There wasn't anything going on in relationship with these two people. This person can then flee to this sanctuary city for protection so that they don't end up getting killed by the avenger. Because they only wanted that to sort of happen when somebody intentionally killed somebody else. So they're trying to curb this practice and created these sanctuary cities. Well, in these passages about these cities, there's three different people that are talked about. The first person that's talked about is the Israelite who kills his or her neighbor intentionally, who sets out to kill his or her neighbor. The second person that's talked about is the Israelite who kills his or her neighbor unintentionally who kills somebody by accident. And the third one is the Israelite who kills his or her neighbor legally, who follows that instruction of saying, hey, if somebody has murdered your clan's person, then you can legally take their life. This is a cap, like the ancient form of capital punishment. So you have all three of these people being addressed, the murderer, the person who's committed involuntary manslaughter, and the person who's carried out capital punishment. And so, of course, the question is, if the majority of this verb, uh, the majority of the uses of this verb fall in these passages, and these passages talk about three, three types of killing. They talk about murder, they talk about involuntary manslaughter, and they talk about capital punishment. Which one is indicated by that verb? Which one is indicated by the verb that is used in the sixth commandment? Which one of them do we find in the sixth commandment? And the answer is all three. That all three of them are indicated by the same verb. In fact, if we look at the total usages of the verb in the Old Testament, it's used 20 times to describe murder, 20 times to describe involuntary manslaughter, and two times to describe capital punishment but the same number of times to describe murder and involuntary manslaughter. And so, of course, the question for us is like, well, wait a minute, how can that be? How is it that the Ten Commandments can prohibit accidentally killing somebody? And how is it that the Ten Commandments could prohibit a form of killing that other passages legalize? How is it that the Ten Commandments can do this? What is going on here? Why is this happening? Why is this the way that this verb particularly works? And I think the key is actually looking at a couple of other passages. And I want to look specifically at one, Genesis chapter 9, verses 5 through 7, that I think helps unlock for us what's going on here in this passage. And it says this, Genesis chapter 9, verses 5 to 7. It says, I will surely demand your blood for a human life. From every living thing, I will demand it. From humans, from a man for his brother, I will demand something for a human life. Whoever sheds human blood, by a human, his blood will be shed. Why? And here's the real critical piece. For in the divine image, God made human beings. In the image 
of God, God made human beings. He made you in his image. He made me in his image. He made the person sitting next to you in his image. In the image of God, he created people. And then he says, as for you then, be fruit, be fertile and multiply, populate the earth and multiply within it. See, the critical thing to understand in trying to unlock or uncover what's going on inside the sixth commandment is to recognize that humans, all humans are made in the image of God. And therefore, taking another person's life is always a serious matter. The person is made in the image of God, so taking a human life is always a serious matter. In the ideal of God, in the very heart of God, it should never happen. This is the very heart of the sixth commandment, which is why all those things get brought up in there, is that taking the life of another person should never happen. But we know in this world that it does which is why we have all of the other legal instructions to talk about what happens when someone does take a human life. As we find in those other instructions that all three of those people face different consequences or no consequences at all, depending upon which situation we're talking about. So the heart of the commandment is that no one's life should ever be taken. And all of the other laws talk about, well, what happens when someone does? What happens when life is taken? But even when it's accidental or legally justified, in the heart of God, it's grievous. In the heart of God, it's better if it didn't happen. In the heart of God, this is not what he intended for us. It would have been better if no one was ever in that situation. See, at the very core of this idea is this, is that killing each other actually violates God's creative intention for us. Did you notice at the very end of that passage that it just kind of suddenly goes from uh, talking about people being made in the image of God and then talking about procreating? It says, it says as for you, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and populate. And you're like, what? you just went from like murder to talking about babies all in like three lines. What is going on there? But the truth of the matter is that killing is the opposite of procreating. Killing is the opposite of what God created us for. This is why that passage ends that way, reminding us, hey, don't be about this business. Don't be about the business of taking human life. Be about the business of, of creating and protecting and causing human life to flourish. See, that passage reminds us to pursue what the commandment protects to remind us of the other side of the commandment. The commandment says, do not take life. And the opposite side of that, the other side of it is to protect it because, God, because life is God's gift to all of us. In talking about the Ten Commandments in his institutes, John Calvin put it this way. He said, if a particular command pleases God, like keeping the Sabbath, then its opposite displeases him. But if that command displeases him, then it, its opposite pleases him. If God commands this, then he forbids the opposite. If he forbids that, then he actually commands the opposite. See, if killing displeases God, then protecting human life pleases him. If he forbids us from taking life, then he actually commands us to do everything we can to see human life flourish. 
It says, this is what my people are to be about, causing life to flourish in the world because I am a God of life who gives life. So I want my people to be about causing life to flourish. And our task then is to discern how to live this out individually and collectively in a world where this is really difficult, in a world that seems bent on tearing itself apart, in a world filled with violence, how do we live this out? How do we as the people of God discern how we then live? This is not easy. See, whenever we start talking about ethical issues related to life and death, we recognize that we're walking into places where there's an incredible amount of controversy and complication. That there are not always really clear paths. That we end up walking into places that we have deep convictions about, that we have deeply held beliefs, and that oftentimes those things are very different from one another. As the people of God, this has got to be a place that we can talk about those things, that we can have those kind of conversations, that we can look at the scriptures and say, okay, then how do we live our lives in light of what is being said here? See, as soon as we start talking about the use of force by law enforcement, protecting our schools or capital punishment, any of those kind of things, we recognize that we're walking into some pretty muddy waters, and to try to think about how do we walk through this together. And the truth is that there are not always simple solutions or clear applications. That this is really, really difficult work and takes a lot of discernment to think through how do we embody this in our lives individually and collectively. So my hope in kind of giving some points here to think about is not to end a conversation, but to start one. And to say, hey, how do we talk about these things as the people of God? So here are just five thoughts and ideas that I think should help us frame the conversation as we move forward to thinking about it. The first one is this, is that we have to recognize that we march to the beat of a different drummer. Right. That at the end of the day, the person that we follow is the Prince of Peace. That we follow the one who came to die to end all death. That who sees death as an enemy and who looks forward to the day when everyone takes their weapons and beats them into plowshares, and that we train for war no more. That is what is set before us. And so that is the person that we follow. So our baseline in these conversations is not the cultural baseline. We start from a distinct place. We start with Jesus. We take a distinct approach, saying that all life is made in God's image. All human life is made in God's image. And we have a distinct goal. That goal waits for its fulfillment on the day that Jesus comes and actually brings the kind of peace that we're working toward. But we take a different approach. We start from a different place. We have a different goal. So our primary concern is not what is legal, justifiable, authorized, allowed, or financially prudent. Instead, we start with the conviction that all people are made in the image of God. That is our fundamental starting place. And just because something is lawful or financially prudent doesn't mean it's godly or good. And we start with the conviction that all people are made in the image of God. And if we do not start in that place, then we run the risk of allowing something else other than the Spirit and the Word of God to guide our ethic in these things. We start from that place. Now, how we live that out can get really complicated. 
couple of examples of just of how people have tried to do this. And these are not by any means all-inclusive. These are just a couple of examples. And other people have figured out other ways to try to do this. But one of the most turbulent times that we've faced in history has been the midst of World War II. As people are wrestling through, how do we live this out in the midst of that situation? And we saw people taking all sorts of different places, but coming out of their conviction that Jesus Christ is Lord. So one of them is a guy by the name of Desmond Dawes, who was, um, you might be familiar with this story through the movie Hacksaw Ridge. Uh, If you have a a queasy stomach, I would not recommend going and seeing the movie. It's pretty violent. But it's actually about a U.S. Army medic in World War II who felt like he needed to act in the midst of all that was happening, but at the same time held the religious conviction that he did not want to take a life. So he decided to enlist as an army medic and refused to carry a gun, which created all sorts of complications and questions and wrestling with himself and his unit and all of those things. But the way his story ends up is there was a particular day on, on Hacksaw Ridge where uh, enemy fire was just everywhere and people's lives were being lost. And Desmond Dawes, bravely, without a weapon, went into the situation and successfully rescued 75 people in the midst of that, trying to figure out, how do I live this out? How do I protect life when everybody's trying to take it? Another example would be uh, in France during that time, there was a Huguenot community who's been written about in a book called Lest Innocent Blood Be Shed by Philip Haley. And in this book, there's this whole community that's trying to figure out how do we actually protect the Jewish people? How do we help get them to freedom? How do we do this in a way that doesn't ever put us in a situation where we have to take a life or even have to lie? They're trying to figure out how do they do this in the most ethical way possible. And the whole book tells about their struggle of trying to do this, how to protect life in the midst of all that was going on while staying true to their religious convictions. Or another one is the story of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who came to the point in his place of saying that he felt like he'd exhausted all of the nonviolent means he possibly could. It became part of a group of people that decided that the only solution was to end Hitler's life. And wrestling through that, and you can read the agony of him kind of wrestling through those decisions. But these are just three examples of people saying, we want to march to the beat of a different drummer. That we want to make sure that our baseline is not the cultural baseline, but we start with the fact that all people are made in the image of God. Second point is this, then out of that, we recognize that we actually are our brothers and sisters keepers. If you remember that story in Genesis chapter 4, where Adam and Eve have had their first two sons, Cain and Abel, and Cain kills Abel, and the Lord comes to talk to Cain about it, and he says, hey, where is your brother? And he sort of answers, like, am I my brother's keeper? And there's no answer because the answer is actually yes. Like we are our brothers and sisters keepers that we're actually called by God to proactively work to protect life and prevent death. That this is what we are called to do so that as a people of God, we emphasize our communal responsibility for other people over our individual rights. We emphasize our communal responsibility for other people, for those made in the image of God, over our individual rights. And so as the people of God, we do everything we possibly can to save lives. We exhaust our creative energy. We expend our resources. We explore all of our options. And we're even willing to make sacrifices to promote life and reduce death. 
This is who we are as the people of God. It's one of the reasons I'm really proud to be on staff at New Life Church. Because we've said we want to be about life in all of the places that we can. And so we've started a women's health clinic that allows women to come and get a free ultrasound. And many of the women who've come out of that place have decided to keep their babies as a result of us investing our time and resources in there. But at the same time, we recognize that life as a single parent can be incredibly difficult for people. And we have lots of single moms in our community who are homeless, trying to raise their kids in their cars. And so we invest our resources in places like Mary's home that allow them to come and begin to live a different kind of life, saying we want to protect and promote their life in this place. It's also why we partner with Lutheran Family Services to help refugees resettle. We want them to be able to leave those places where their lives are threatened and help them find a place to live here. It's also the reason why when we have people who come to the country undocumented who are fleeing the same kinds of things, looking for a better opportunity, we want to help get them lawyers and help them become documented. While at the same time, saying we don't have to choose any side, so we're going to take our sheriff's deputies and we're going to make sure they all have the protective gear that they need so there's a greater chance they come home to their families at night. We can do it all. We can protect all of our brothers and sisters. We don't have to choose sides politically. We choose his side. And Jesus' side is about life always. And so wherever there's an opportunity for us to promote life and prevent death, we want to be a part of that because we think that's what Jesus would do. He'd say, I want to be a part of that. Let's get on board and say, how do we do that as a church? Third thing, because we recognize that all people are made in God's image, that we are our brothers and sisters keepers. We weep when anyone is killed. We weep when anyone is killed, regardless of the cause or the person, whether it was legal or justifiable, whether the person was a total stranger or our sworn enemy. We weep, we mourn, and we grieve because we believe that's what God is doing. That we do not celebrate death, we do not champion killing, and we do not seek to profit from it. That as the people of God, we weep, we grieve, we mourn. Proverbs puts it this way. It says, when your enemies fall, don't rejoice. When they stumble, don't let your heart be glad. We can be glad for our lives. We can be glad maybe in the situation that we faced that we are safe, that our lives were spared. But we don't rejoice over the lives that were lost. Because we know it would have been better if this hadn't happened. So we weep. Number four, we cut violence off at the pass. In Jesus's commentary on this passage we found and read in Matthew chapter five, he talks about, you've heard it said, do not murder, but I say to you, do not even be angry with your brother. For anyone who says you idiot or you fool is gonna be in danger of judgment, which describes my whole childhood. <laughs> I, this is, my brothers, this is, I have three brothers, Imagine the things that we said to one another. I can't repeat any of them in here. Uh, we have to talk outside to talk about any of those things. There's a sense that we can all relate to that. Maybe we've never been in a situation where someone's life has been taken in our presence. But we all know what it's like to be angry with somebody. And what Jesus says is there's a slippery slope from anger to murder. 
that it's really easy for anger to become contempt, contempt to become hate, and hate to turn violent. There is a slippery slope in this process. And so Jesus encourages us to cut it off at the pass, to be able to recognize that when we feel angry, we do not ignore those emotions, that we do not allow that just to sit here, but instead we think about what offended us and then we go to the person to try to work it out. Notice he says that it goes from anger to offense. Recognize that anger is usually just a presenting emotion. That underneath that is some sort of hurt or pain or disappointment or disrespect or something that we've experienced that causes us then to feel anger toward another person. And what Jesus says is we have to take those emotions seriously. That as the people of God, we do not just pretend our emotions away that we don't just sort of like hide them out somewhere. Because what happens if we try to hide our emotions is that in the dark, they begin to grow and fester like mold in our souls. That actually something begins to go grievously wrong inside of us. And we begin to venture down this slippery slope. So he says, no, cut it off at the past. Even says it this way. He says, we find ourselves coming to worship to fulfill the first commandment to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, and all your strength. Find yourself coming to put the first commandment on display and realize that either you've offended a brother or sister or a brother or a sister has offended you to stop what you're doing and go to them. I say that this matters, that human life and human relationships and human emotions matter so we take them seriously. We do the kind of work that we need to do to explore what's going on inside of us and then take every step that we can to make reconciliation. Knowing, as we talked about last week, that reconciliation takes two groups. So if somebody's offended us and we go to them and they're unrepentant, they're unwilling to change, they're unwilling to do their part, we can't control that, but we can control our part. Or if we know that we're the offending partner, we go and we name what we did as evil. And we commit to change. We say that we're sorry. We do everything we can to make reconciliation with that person, to reconcile with them. We do everything that we can. We name those emotions. We own them. And we work on relationships in that way. So when you come to a, a, a sermon like this and think, oh, we're just going to be talking about killing today. And all of a sudden we're starting to talk about anger. The circle gets really big, doesn't it? <laughs> and so maybe even this morning, there's all those thoughts kind of popping in our head of the person that we know is either angry with us or we're angry with them. And the Lord's invitation is to take that seriously and to figure out what's going on, where the anger is coming from, and to begin to take steps toward reconciling that relationship if possible. Because if not, we start to go on a very slippery slope that we do not want to go down if we're going to be the kind of people who do everything we can to promote life and prevent death. That we cut violence off at the pass. And then the last thing is we come back home through Christ alone. And these passages related to the cities of refuge, they're just fascinating passages. One of them in Numbers chapter 35 is one of the longer ones. 
But it's really interesting. What happens is, is that the person who's taken someone's life flees to the city of refuge and they stay there until trial. And if it was found out that they intentionally killed the person, then that person is sent out of the city of refuge where their life can now be legally taken by the avenger from the other person's family or tribe or clan. If the person comes to trial and it's found out they killed the other person unintentionally, that it was an accident, that this was involuntary manslaughter, you know what happens? They have to go back to the city of refuge. And they have to stay there until the, the high priest dies. They go back to the city of refuge and they stay there until the high priest dies. And when the high priest dies, then they can go home. See that even in situations that were involuntary, when great pain happens in the world, or we expand it out and we think about maybe the pain that we've caused, maybe it hasn't been to the extent of taking another person's life. Maybe it's been angry, angry with someone that led to a complete breakdown in a relationship. Or maybe we have been placed in the unspeakably devastating position where we've had to take a life out of the situation that we were in in military service or in law enforcement, or maybe someone's life was taken by accident as we were driving a car or something else, that no matter where we find ourselves on that spectrum, we know that something has gone awry, that things are not right. And as the people of God, we know that there's the death of only one high priest who can make those things all right. There's only the death of one high priest who can actually bring us all home. And so we come here as the people of God every single week, recognize that wherever we fall on that spectrum or any other spectrum related to the Ten Commandments, that we find ourselves anywhere related to right relationship with God, right relationship with other people, if there has been a break, a fissure, something that has gone off, we know there's only one person who can bring us home. There's only one person who can set us right. There's only one person who can make that right out in the world. There's only one person whose shed blood actually makes peace. There's only one person whose shed blood reconciles all things to himself. There's only one person in whom we find the forgiveness of sin because of his death and resurrection, and that's Jesus, the great high priest who gave himself for all of us, for all of our sin, for whatever breakdown that we've contributed to or had in the midst of life with God and life with one another. And so we recognize that it's only the high priest that can bring us home. That we cannot do this by ourselves. That we cannot be the kind of people that live this life out without Jesus at work in us. And ultimately we know the kind of peace that we're looking for, both internally and externally in ourselves and our relationships and our world is only made possible by Jesus and will only be made manifest when he comes again and sets everything right and makes everything good again. So that's why we gather here every week and we come to this table where one of the centerpieces of the table is the blood of the high priest. That we come here and we know that this is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for me and for you and for others, for many, for the forgiveness of sins. And it's only by him that we come back home to life with God, to life with one another. And it's only through him 
then we'll actually see the peace that we all want made fully possible. But in the meantime, we participate in every way that we can because as the people of God, we are ambassadors of his peace in the world. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we come before you. We thank you that all human life is made in your image. It's a profound thought for us, God, that we ourselves are made in your image. It's an even profounder thought that even our enemies are made in your image. And we pray that you would help us to take human life, to understand human life, to see human life with the kind of seriousness that you do. That you would help us to be the kind of people who do all that we can to be our brothers and sisters keepers, to protect life and prevent death. Give us wisdom how to do that and in the places that we have gone off, no matter where that is, into anger or anything else. We pray that your blood would cleanse us, that your blood would heal us, that your blood would forgive us, that your blood would make us right, and that your death would bring us home. We pray these things in Jesus' name.